Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I'm the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by Gigaon. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Adrian McDermott. He is Zendesk's president of products, where he works to build software for better customer relationships, including, of course, exploring how AI and machine learning impacts the way customers engage with businesses. Adrian is a Yorkshireman living in San Francisco, and he holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from De Montfort University. Welcome to the show, Adrian. Thanks, Byron. Great to be here. Well, my first question is almost always, what is artificial intelligence? So um, when I think about artificial intelligence, I think about AI as a system that can interact with and learn from its environment in an independent manner. I think that's where the intelligence comes from. Um, AI systems have traditionally been optimized for achieving specific tasks. Um, In computer science, we used to write programs using procedural languages and we would tell them exactly what to do at every stage of that language. And um, with AI, it can actually learn and adapt from its environment and, you know, reason to a certain extent and build out capabilities and do that. And so narrowly, I think that's what AI is, but societally, I think the term has a a series of connotations and takes on um, some scary, some super interesting and exciting uh, meanings and consequences when we think about it and when we talk about it. So we'll get to that in due course, but back to, uh, on your narrow definition, it learns from its environment. That's um, a pretty high bar actually. So by that measure, my dog food bowl that automatically refills when it runs out, even though it's reacting to its environment, it's not learning from its environment. Whereas a nest thermometer, you would say is learning from its environment and therefore is AI, did I call the ball right on both of those, kind of the way you see the world? Um, I think so. I mean, your dog bowl perhaps can, you know, understands how much food, maybe does it learns over time how much food your dog needs every day. And it adapts to its environment as it's itself being emptied. Um, but also maybe it understands how much food the dog needs every day. I don't know. So you could have an intelligent, dog bowl, dog feeding system. Um, hopefully one that understands the nature of most dogs is to keep eating until they choke, um, <laughs> which is, I think, is an important, that would be an important governor on that system, let's be honest. But I think in general, that characterization is good where that, uh, you know, we as biological computational devices uh, learn from our environments and take in a series of inputs from those environments and then you know, use those experiences, I think, as to pattern match new, new stimuli and um, new situations that we encounter so that we know what to do, even though we've never seen that exact situation before. So, and not to put any words in your mouth, but you, you actually think, it sounds like, that humans react to our environment, and that is the source of our intelligence, and computer that reacts to its environment, it's 
artificial intelligence, but it really is intelligent. It's not artificial. It's not faking it. It really is intelligent. Is that correct? Well, I think artificial intelligence is this ability to learn from the environment and come up with new behaviors as a result of those learnings. And there are, you know, there's a tremendous number, I think, of examples of AI systems that have created new ways of doing things and have learned, right? I think one of the most famous is, uh, is it Move 34 in you know, Google's AlphaGo when it was playing the game Go against Lee Sendall, one of the greatest players in the world? Um, it, it performed a move that was shocking to the Go community and the Go intelligentsia because it had you know, learned and it had evolved its thinking to a point where it was you know, created new ways of doing things that were not, you know, not natural for us as humans. And I think um, artificial intelligence really uh, when it fulfills its promises is, is able to create and learn in that way. But currently, you know, most systems do that within a very narrow problem domain. So with regard to an artificial general intelligence, um, do you think that the way we think of AI today eventually evolves into an AGI? In other words, are we on a path to create one or, or do you think, a truly generalized intelligence will be built a completely different way than how we are currently building AI systems today. Um, well, I mean, one of the, you know, there are a series of characteristics of intelligence that we have, right. That we think about, um, you know, one of them is the ability to, uh, you know, think about a problem or think about a scenario and run our heads through different ways of handling that scenario and imagine different outcomes uh, uh, and almost to self-actualize in those situations. And I think, you know, like modern uh, deep learning techniques actually are, you know, they, there is some evidence that the, or the, the construction is such that they are looking at different scenarios to come up with different outcomes. Um, ultimately, you know, the, we don't, necessarily i think i believe it's true to say understand a great deal about the nature of consciousness and the way that our brains work uh, we know a lot about the physiology not necessarily about the philosophy and so it does seem like you know our brains are sort of neuron based computation devices that take a whole bunch of inputs and process them based on stored experiences and learnings and it does seem like that's the kind of systems that we're building with um, artificial intelligence-based machines and computers. And so given that technology gets better every year, year over year, it seems like a natural conclusion that ultimately uh, technology advancements will be such that we can reach the same point of general intelligence that um, our cerebral cortex, cortex reached, you know, millions, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And so I think we have to assume that we will eventually get there. And it seems like we're building those systems in the same way that our brains function right now. That's fascinating because that description of human's ability to imagine different scenarios is in fact some people's theory as to how consciousness emerged and not, not putting you on the spot because as you said, we don't really know, but is that, is that plausible to you that, that being able to 
essentially kind of carry on that internal dialogue with that, hmm, I wonder if I should go pull that tiger's tail. I could pull the tail, you know. Is that, do you think, what made us conscious, or do you have, are, are you indifferent on that question? Um, you know, I only have a layman's opinion, but, I, you know, I do think that. There's that, uh, there's the test in, uh, is it, I don't know if it's an evolutionary bio, biologist, psychology, the, the mirror test, where... If you put a dog in front of a mirror, it doesn't recognize itself, but um, Asian elephants and dolphins do recognize themselves in the mirror. Uh, and so it's an interesting question of like that ability to self-actualize, to understand who you are and then to make plans and go forward. That is the nature of intelligence. And from an evolutionary point of view, you can imagine a number of ways in which that consciousness of self and that ability to make plans um, was essential for the species to thrive and move forward. Uh, you know, we're the largest species on the planet, but we've become somewhat dominant as a result of our ability to plan and take actions. And I think, you know, certain behaviors that we manifest came from, you know, the advantageous nature of cooperation between, you know, members of our species and the way that we act together uh, and act independently and dream independently and move together. And I think um, it seems clear that uh, that is probably how consciousness evolved. It was um, an evolutionary advantage to be conscious, to be able to make plans to think about oneself. Um, and, you know, we seem to be on a path where we're emulating those structures in our artificial intelligence work. Yeah, the mirror test is fascinating because uh, um, only one bird passes it, and that is uh, the magpie. The magpie. Yeah, and there's recent research, uh, very recent, that suggests ants pass it, which would be staggering. And it looks like they've controlled for so many things, but uh, but it 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 is an it is unquestionably a fascinating thing. Of course, people disagree on on what exactly. <laughs> It means. Yeah, no, what, what, what does it mean? It's interesting that ants pass because ants do form like a multi-role complex society. So is it one of the requirements of like a multi-role complex society that you need to be able to pass the mirror test and understand who you are and what your place is in that society? Yeah, that is fascinating. I, uh, well, I actually e emailed Gallup and asked him, uh, did you know ants passed the test? And he's like, really? I hadn't heard that. Because uh, you know, he's the, the uh, originator of it. You know, one theory is that it only <laughs> means, it only means, so the argument against it goes like this. If you put a red dot on a dog's paw, dog knows that's its paw. It might lick it off its own paw, right? And so the dog has a sense of self. It knows that's its foot. And that maybe all the mirror test is doing is testing to see if it's smart enough to understand what a mirror is, which is a completely different, completely different thing. Um, yeah. So, so do you think by extension, and again, with your qualification that it's a layman's viewpoint, you're, I asked you a question about AGI and you launched into a, a, a description of consciousness. So can I infer from your answer that you believe that an AGI will be conscious? Um, I, you can infer from my answer that I think I believe that to have a truly, you know, artificial general intelligence, I, I think I think that consciousness is a requirement or some kind of ability to have 
uh, freedom in thought direction in some ways, or freedom in thinking direction. And I think that possibly is uh, part of the nature of consciousness or one way of thinking about it. Well, I, I would tend to agree, but l let me just, everybody's had that uh, sensation of your driving and you kind of space, right? And all of a sudden you kind of snap to a minute later and you're like, whoa, I don't have any memory of driving to this spot, right? And in that mm -hmm. moment, in that moment, you merged traffic, you changed lanes and all of that. And so you acted intelligently, but you were not, in a sense, conscious at that moment. So do, do you think the problem with that saying, oh, that's an example of intelligence without consciousness is the problem that no, 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 you really were conscious all the time or no, 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 you didn't have like some new idea or anything. You just managed off road. Do you have a thought on that? Mm, I think, you know, it's true that uh, so much of what we do as beings is, is managed off rote. But um, probably a lot, you know, a lot of the reason we're successful as a species is because we don't just go off rote. Like if someone had driven in front of you with a car, if the phone had rung, if all these things had happened that would have created uh, suitably justifiable stored in short-term memory because it's important event while you were driving you would have moved into a different you know mode of consciousness right um i think um you know the, the human brain takes in a massive amount of input in some ways but you know filters it down to just this you know quote-unquote stream of consciousness of, of experiences that are important or things that are happening and it's you know that uh, the filter of consciousness or the filter of the brain that puts you in the moment where you're dealing with the most important thing that in some ways characterizes us. And when we think about um, artificial intelligence and how machines experience the world, uh, you know, we have five sensory inputs flowing into our brains and our memories, but, um, you know, machine can have, you know, yes, vision, sound, but, you know, GPS, infrared, just some random event stream from another machine. There are all of these inputs that, you know, act in some ways as sensors for an artificially intelligent machine that are much, in some ways, richer and more diverse or could be. Um, and that, uh, that governor, that thing that filters that down or, or figures out what the objective is for the artificial general intelligence machine and takes the right inputs and does the right pattern matching and does the right thinking is going to be uh, incredibly important to achieve, I, I think, artificial general intelligence where it knows how to direct, if you like, its thoughts and how to plan and how to do and how to act and how to think about solving problems. All right. Well, I, I have just a few, this is a, fascinating to me. And so I have just a few more questions about, about AGI, if, if you'll just indulge me for another minute. So the range of time that people think it's going to take us to get it, by my reckoning, uh, is five years on the soonest and 500 on the longest. Uh, do you have any opinion on when we might develop an AGI? Um, I think I agree with five years on the soonest, but you know, Honestly, it, one of the things I struggle with as we think about that is like, who really knows? Because, you know, we have so little understanding of how the brain actually works to produce intelligence and sentience. 
that it's hard to know how rapidly we're approaching that or replicating it. It could be, you know, that um, as we build smarter and smarter uh, non-general artificial intelligence, eventually we just, you know, wander into a greater understanding of, of uh, consciousness or sentience by accident just because we've built a machine that emulates the brain. Um, you know, that's a, in some ways a plausible outcome. Like we'll get enough computation that eventually we'll figure it out or it'll become apparent. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, and if you to ask me, I think that's 10 to 15 years away. And do you think we have computers fast enough already to do it? We just, you know, don't know how to, don't know how to do it. Or do you think we're waiting on hardware improvements as well? I think the primary improvements we're waiting on is software, but I'm, you know, software activities are often constrained by the power and limits of the hardware that we're running it on, right? Like it's hard to, until you see a more advanced machine, it's hard to imagine, uh, it's hard to practically imagine or design a system that could run upon it. So um, the two things improve in parallel, I think. So if you believe we all have it, maybe, maybe have an AGI in 15 years that if we have one, it could very easily be conscious. And if it's conscious, therefore it would have a will, presumably. Are you one of the people that worries about that, the, 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 the super intelligent scenario uh, that it, you know, has different goals and ambitions than we have? Um, I think that's one of many scenarios that we need to worry about, right? Like in, you know, our current society, any, any great idea, uh, it seems like, is either weaponizable uh, in a very direct way, uh, which is scary, um, or, uh, you know, the way that we're, we're set up, you know, locally and globally is really in an intensely sort of competitive world where any advantage one can eke is then used to dominate or, or take advantage of or gain advantage from position against our fellow man in, you know, in this country, in other countries globally, et cetera. And so I don't even think personally that, you know, there's quite a bit of, you know, fear mongering about artificial and general intelligence, but, you know, better and not necessarily massively significantly better artificial intelligence gives one, you know, innate advantages, um, gives the owner of those technologies, the inventor of those technologies, innate advantages in terms of taking, you know, using, um, using those technologies to get great gain. And I think there's many stages along the way where someone can put, you know, very competitively put those technologies to work without even achieving artificial and general intelligence. So yes, the, the moment of singularity, artificial general intelligence, machines that can invent machines that are, you know, just considerably faster in ways that we can't understand. That's a scary thought. And, um, you know, technology may be outthinking our moral and philosophical understanding of the implications of that. But at the same time, uh, some of the things that we're building now, like if they're just 50% better or, you know, 77% smarter, those could actually be, you know, through weaponization or just through extreme mercantile advantage taking. Those could have a serious effect on of the planet, humankind, etc. And so I, I'm, you know, uh, I think we're in a, 
I, I do believe that we're in an AI arms race. Um, and I do find that a little bit scary. Well, I, I, Vladimir Putin just said that he th thinks the future is going to belong to whoever um, control, you know, whoever masters AI. And Elon Musk recently said World War III will be fought over AI. It sounds like you think that's maybe a more real world concern than the, the rogue AGI. Um, I think it is because I think there could be, you know, we've seen tremendous leaps in the capability of technology just in the last five years, uh, certainly in the last five to 10 years. And so, you know, more and more people are working in this problem domain. Uh, you know, it, the, that number must be doubling every six months or something ridiculous like that in terms of the number of people who are starting to think about AI, the number of companies deploying some kind of technology. Um, and as a result, you know, we could, there are breakthroughs that are going to begin happening, um, you know, either in public academia or more likely, you know, often uh, in, in private labs that will be, that are um, leverageable by the entities that create them uh, in, you know, really meaningful ways. I think by one count, there's 20 different nations whose militaries are working on on AI weapons. It's hard to get a firm grip on because A, they wouldn't necessarily say so, and B, there's not a lot of agreement on, on what the term um, AI means. But in terms of machines that can make kill decisions, that's probably mm. a, a reasonable guess. You mentioned- Yeah, I mean, it's-, it's Go ahead. I'd say, you know, I think one shift uh, that we've seen, um, in, you know, this is just, anecdotal, my own opinion, is that, you know, so much of base research in computer science or artificial intelligence, so much of base research in a lot of science is done in academia uh, and done, you know, basically publicly publishable and for the public good, I think, traditionally. And if you look at artificial intelligence and where, you know, the greatest minds of our generation are not necessarily working in the public sphere on artificial intelligence. They're, you know, locked up, tied up in um, private entity companies, basically generally very, very large companies, or they are, um, they're working on, you know, the military industrial complex. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a, sh I think that's a shift. I think that's different from scientific discovery, you know, medical research, all of these things in the past. Um, and so, um, the closed door nature of this uh, R&D effort um, and the fact that it's becoming uh, almost a national and nationalistic concern um, with very little right now, you know, there are weapons treaties, there are nuclear treaties, there are research weapons treaties, right? I think we're only just beginning to talk about um, AI treaties and AI understanding and we're a long way from any result because the potential gains for the, for whomever goes first uh, are or makes the biggest discovery first or makes the great breakthrough first are tremendous. Uh, and so we, you know, it's a, it's a very competitive world uh, and it's going on behind closed doors. Yeah. You know, the thing about the atomic bomb is at least it had the virtue of, they were hard to build. And so even if you knew how to build it, uh, that was hard, but AI won't be that way, right? Like it'll fit on a flash drive. 
uh, or at least the core technology would, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I think, you know, building AGI, some of these things require uh, web scale computational power that currently, based on today's technology, you know, that requires data centers, not flash drives. And so there is a barrier to entry to some of these things, but that said, you know, the great breakthrough more than likely will be an algorithm or some thinking and that will, yes, indeed fit on uh, a modern flash drive without any problem. So what do you think of the OpenAI initiative, which says, let's, let's make this all public and share it all and it's going to happen. We might as well make sure everybody has access to it and not just one party. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a, from, you know, I, I, I work at a SaaS company, we build products to sell and, you know, through open source technologies, through cloud platforms, you know, we get to stand on the shoulders of giants and use amazing stuff and shorten our development cycles and do things that we would never be able to do as a, you know, as a small company founded in Copenhagen. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge believer in those initiatives. I think that part of the reason that um, open source has been so successful in just the problems of computer science and computer infrastructure is that um, to a certain extent, there's been, a, there's been a maturation of thought where not every company believes its ability to store and retrieve its data quickly is a defining characteristic for them. You know, we're a customer, you know, I work at Zendesk and we're a, in the business of customer service software. You know, we build software that helps our, that tries to help our customers have better relationships with their customers. So it's not clear that, you know, having the best cloud hosting engine or being able to use, you know, NoSQL technology is something that's going to, you know, is of tremendous commercial value to us. And so we believe in open source. And so we contribute back and we contribute because there's no perceived risk of commercial impairment by doing that. This isn't our core IP. Our core IP is around how we treat customers. I think that um, that, while I'm a huge believer in the OpenAI initiative, I think that there isn't necessarily that widespread same belief from the parties, you know, at the forefront of uh, investment levels in AI research and at the forefront of thinking. I think that there's a clear, uh, for some of those entities, there's a, there's a clear notion that um, they, they can gain tremendous advantage by keeping that technology, anything that they invent inside of the walled garden for as long as possible and using it to their advantage. So, I would dearly love that initiative to succeed. Um, I don't know that right now we have the environment in which it will truly succeed. You mentioned you've, you've made a couple of references to artificial intelligence mirroring the human brain. Do you follow the human brain project in, in Europe, which is, you know, taking that approach. They're saying, why don't we just try to replicate the thing we know can think already? Um, I don't really, um, I'm delighted by the idea, but I, I haven't read too much about it. What do you, do you think what are they that learning? it's, uh, it's expensive and they're behind schedule, but, uh, but they're, they're still, I mean, it's been funded to the tune of one and a half billion dollars. I mean, so it's a really serious effort. And, wow. um, 
and and so you know the, the challenge is going to be if it turns out that a neuron is as complicated as a supercomputer that 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 things go on at the Planck level that it is mm-hmm. it is this incredible machine that because I think the hope is that it that if you get you know a lot of how the brain works that that you just take it if you take it at face value that that is something maybe we can duplicate but if there's other stuff going on it it might be more problematic but as a as an ai researcher yourself do you ever start with the question well how do humans do that is that is that how you do it when you're thinking about how to solve a problem do you say well how do how do humans do that or or do you not find a lot of corollaries between kind of in your day to day between how a human does something and how a computer would do it? Um, when, you know, when we're thinking about solving problems with AI, what we're really thinking about is um, how can we, how can we take, you know, we, you know, we're using basic in some ways we're at the basic level of directed AI technology. And what we're thinking about is, how can we make, how can we remove these tasks that humans perform on a regular basis? How can we uh, enrich the lives of either, in our case, the person needing customer service or the person providing customer service? It's, it's relatively simple. And so the standard approach for that is to, yes, look directly um, at the activities of a person. Look at, look at what ways that you can automate and take advantage of uh, the benefits that the AI is going to buy you, right? So, you know, in customer service land, you can, you know, you can remember every interaction very easily that every customer has had with a particular brand. And then you can look at the outcomes that those interactions have had, good or bad through satisfaction, the success and the timing. And you can start to emulate those things and, you know, remove friction, replace the need for people whatsoever and build out really interesting things to do. And so the you know the primary the primal way to approach a problem is really to um, look at what humans are doing and and try and replace them certainly where um, it's not their cognitive ability that is necessarily to the fore or being used. But I think um, and that's something that we do a lot. But I think that misses um, that misses the the magic, you know, because. Um, one of the things that you know happens with, I think, uh, an AI system can be that it produces results that are, you know, to to use Arthur C. Clarke's phrase, sufficiently advanced to be indistinguishable from magic. And so you can, you know, you can invent new things that were not possible because of the human brain's limited bandwidth or because of limited memories or other things where you can, you can basically remember all experiences all at once and then use those to create new things. So in our own work, um, we realize that um, it would be, it's incredibly difficult uh, with any accuracy given an input from a customer or a question from a customer to predict the ultimate customer satisfaction score, the CSAT score that you'll get. But that's an incredibly important number for customer service departments in knowing ahead of time that you're going to have a bad experience with this customer based on signals in the input is incredibly useful. And so, you know, one of the things we built was a satisfaction prediction engine, you, you know, using various models to, and that allows us to basically route tickets to experts and do other things. And that's something, you know, that kind of, you know, 
no, you, we're not, there's no human who sits there and gives out predictions on how a ticket is going to go, how an experience for the customer is going to go. That's something that we invented because only a machine can do that. So yes, there is an approach to what we do, which is how can we automate these human tasks? But there's also an approach of what is it that we can do that is impossible for humans that would be awesome to do? Uh, you know, is there magic here that we can put in place? So in addition to there being, you know, a lot of concern about the things we talked about, about war, about uh, AGI and all of that, there's in the narrow AI, you know, kind of in the here and now, uh, of course, there's a, a big debate about automation and, and what these technologies are going to do for jobs. And just to kind of set the question up, there are three, three different narratives people offer. One is that uh, the job, that automation is going to take uh, all, all of the really low skill jobs and there'll be a, a group of people who are unable to compete against machines and will have kind of permanent unemployment at the level of the Great Depression or something like that. And then there's a second camp that says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. It's far worse than that. They're going to take everybody's job. They're going to, everybody, not any, because there'll be a moment that the machine can learn something faster than a human. And then there's a third one that says, no, with these technologies, people just take the technology and they use it to increase their own productivity. And they don't actually ever cause an unemployment, electricity and, in, and mechanization and all of that didn't surge, didn't increase unemployment at all. So do you, do you follow one of, believe one of those three or maybe a fourth one? What do you think the effects of AI on employment? Um, I think the, the parallel that's often drawn um, is a parallel to the Industrial Revolution where, you know, the Industrial Revolution brought... Uh, brought as a way to transform energy from one form into another um, and allowed us to mechanize society manufacturing, which altered the nature of society from agrarian to industrial, which created cities, which had this big transformation. Uh, the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, took a long time. It took a long time to, for people to move from the farms to the factories. Uh, it took a long time to transform the landscape, you know, comparatively. I think the one of the reasons that there's trepidation and nervousness around artificial intelligence is it doesn't seem like it will take that long. Like it's almost fantastical science fiction to me that, um, you know, I see, I, I get to see different vendors, self-driving cars mapping San Francisco on a regular basis. And I see people driving around with no hands on the wheel. Um, I mean, that's extraordinary. I don't think even five years ago, I would believe that we would have self-driving cars on public roads. Uh, it didn't seem like a thing. And now it seems like, um, you know, automated driving machines are not very far away. And so if you think about the societal impact of that, well, uh, According to an NPR study in 2014, I think driving or truck driving is the top, is the number one job in 29 states in, in America. Um, like there are literally millions of driving jobs. And, you know, I think it, it's one of the fastest growing categories of jobs and things like that will all disappear uh, or to a certain extent will disappear. And so um, it's and it'll happen rapidly. And so it's really hard for me to subscribe to the, you know, yes, you know, we're improving customer service software here at Zendesk in such a way that we're making agents more efficient and they're getting to spend more time with customers and they're rating CSAT and consequently those businesses 
have better net promoter scores and they're thriving. And I, you know, I believe that that's what we're doing and I believe that that's what's going to happen. But, um, you know, if we can, if we can answer automatically 10% of a customer's tickets, that means that you need 10% less agents to answer those tickets unless they're going to invest more in customer service. And the profit motive says that there'll need to be, you know, a return on investment analysis between those two things. And so in my own industry, I see this. And then across society, it's hard not to believe that there won't be a fairly large scale disruption. Um, and uh, I don't know that as a society, we're necessarily in a position to absorb that disruption yet and think about it. You know, I know in Finland, they have a, they're experimenting with a guaranteed minimum income, right? To take away the stress of, um, the stress of having to find work or qualify for unemployment benefit and all these things so that people have a better quality of life and can hopefully find ways to be productive in society. But, you know, not, uh, not many company, countries are as progressive as Finland. So um, I'm, I'm definitely, I would put myself in the very nervous about the societal effects of uh, re- large scale removal of sources of employment because it's not clear uh, what the alternative structures are that are set up in society to find meaningful work and sustenance for people who are losing those jobs is. And, you know, we've been on a trajectory since the, I think the seventies of, um, of polarization in society and generating inequality. And I think um, uh, I worry that this could be, you know, the, the, the large scale creation of um, an unemployed mass could be a tipping point. So I take a very pessimistic view. Well, let me give you a different narrative on that and tell me what, what's wrong with it, how the logic falls down on it. And let's talk just about truck drivers. So that would go like this. It would say that concern that you're going to have in mass, all these truck drivers is beyond ill-founded. To begin with, um, the technology is not done and it will still need to be worked out. And then the legislator, legislative hurdles have to be worked out and that'll be done gradually by state by state by state. Then there'll be a long period of time when law will require there to be a driver and the self-driving technology will just kick in when it feels like the driver's making a mistake with that there'll be an override, just like we can fly airplanes without pilots now, but we insist on having a pilot. Then the driving part of the job is actually not the whole job. And so like any other job, when you automate part of it, like the driving, that person takes on more things. Then on top of that, uh, the equipment's not retrofit to it. So you're going to have to figure out how do you retrofit all this stuff. Then on top of that, you've got the whole issue that um, having self-driving cars is going to open up all kinds of new employment. And then you have the idea that because we talk about this all the time, there are probably fewer people going into truck driving, right? And there are people who retire in it every year. And that just like every other thing, uh, it's just kind of going to gradually work as, as the economy reallocates resources. So why do you think truck driving is like this big tipping point thing? Well, I think, I think driving jobs in general are a tipping point thing, right? Because yes, there are challenges to rolling it out and obviously there's legislative challenges, but you know, it's not hard to see 
certainly interstate trucking going first and then drive, you know, drivers meeting those trucks and driving through urban areas and various things like that happening. I think people are working on retrofit devices for trucks. Um, and, you know, and what will happen is truck drivers who are not actually driving will be allowed to work longer hours. And so you need less truck drivers in that way. Um, the need for, you know, we're shifting from, in general, as a society, going and getting our stuff and to having our stuff delivered to us. And so the, the voracious appetite for more drivers, in my opinion, is not going to abate. Um, and yeah, the, the last mile is driven by trucks. It's, you know, uh, smaller delivery drivers, things that can be done by smarter robots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those, those challenges you communicate are, are going to be moderating forces on the disruption. But, um, you know, when, some, when something reaches the tipping point of acceptance and cost acceptability, um, the change, you know, change tends to be rapid if driven by the profit motive. And uh, I think that is what we're going to see, right? The efficiency of Amazon and the fact that every product is online in that marketplace is driven and is driving a tremendous change in the nature of retail. And I think, you know, the delivery logistics of that need uh, are going to go through uh, a similar turnaround and companies driving that are going to be very aggressive about it because the economics are so appealing. Well, of course, the, the, again, the general uh, question, the general answer to that is that when technology does lower the price of something dramatically, like you're, like you're talking about the cost of delivery, um, and self-driving cars would, would lower it, that, that that in turn increases demand, which you were saying that we're going to have more of that. And by kind of, and, and that, that lowering of cost means all of a sudden you can afford to deliver all kinds of things. And that that ripple effect in turn creates those jobs, right? Like people, people spend all their money, uh, more or less, right? And if something goes, becomes cheaper, they turn around and spend that money on something else, which by definition, therefore creates downstream employment. But I'm just having a hard time seeing that this, this idea that somehow costs are going to fall and, and that money won't be redeployed in other places that in turn creates employment, which is kind of 250 years of, of history. Mm -hmm. Well, um, do you, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that as cost fall in industries, all of those profits are generally returned to the consumer, right? Businesses in the logistics retail space, general, like retailers run at 2% margin, right? Uh, and businesses in logistics run with low margins. And so there's, there's room for those people to kind of um, optimize their own businesses and uh, not pass on necessarily all of those benefits to the consumer. And then obviously there's room for disruption where someone come in, will come in shave back down the margins and pass on those benefits. But in general, you know, um, online banking is more efficient because we prefer it. And so there are less people working in banking. Conversely, you know, when banks shifted to ATMs, banking became much more of a part of our lives and more convenient. So we ended up with more bank tellers because personal service was a thing. I think that um, there just are a lot of driving jobs out there that, don't necessarily need to be done by humans, um, but we'll still be spending the same amount on getting driven around. 
right? And so there'll be more self-driving cars. Self-driving cars crash less, hopefully. And so there's less need for auto repair shops, you know. There's a bunch of knock-on effects of using that technology. Um, and it's clearly, uh, it's clearly going to be, a, you know, for a cert- certain classes of jobs, there's gonna be clearly going to be a shift where those jobs disappear. And it's a question of, there is a question of how, uh, how readily the, the people doing those jobs are able to transfer their skills to other employment, and is there other employment out there for them? Fair enough. Um, so let's talk about Zendesk for a moment. You've, you've alluded to a couple of ways that you employ artificial intelligence, but um, can you just kind of give me an idea on what, like, what gets you excited in the morning when you wake up and you think, I had this great new uh, technology, artificial intelligence, that can do all these wondrous things. I want to use it to make people's lives better who, who, who uh, are in charge of customer relationships. How uh, entice me with some things that, that you're thinking of doing, that you're working on, that, that you've learned, and just kind of tell me about your day-to-day. Sure, yeah. I think that, um, you know, for, for so much of, uh, so many customer service inquiries, you know, begin with someone who has a thirst for, thirst for knowledge, right? 76% of people um, try to self-serve when trying to find the answer to the question. Uh, and a great many people who do get on the phone are actually online at the same time trying to discover the answer to that problem. And um, I think often there's, there's, a, there's a challenge in terms of having enough context to know what someone is looking for, or having that context available to all of the systems that they're interacting with. And I think technology, not just artificial intelligence, but technology, but artificial intelligence can help us pinpoint uh, the intention of users because the, the goal of, of the software that we provide and the customer service uh, ethos that we have is that uh, we need to remove friction. The thing that um, really generates bad experiences in customer services interactions isn't that someone said no or we didn't get the outcome that we want uh, or they didn't you know, return, we didn't get our return process or something like that. Um, it's that uh, negative experiences tend to be generated from an excess of friction. So it's that you know, I had to switch from one channel to another it's that I had to repeat myself over and over again it's so that everyone I was talking to didn't have context on my account or my experience as a customer and these things. And I think that if you look at that sort of uh, pile of problems, you see uh, real opportunities to give people better experiences just by holding a lot more data uh, at one time uh, about that context and then being able to process that data and make intelligent predictions and guesses and estimations about what it is they're looking for and what is going to help them. So we, we recently launched uh, a service we call Answerbot, which uses um, uh, deep learning to look at the data we have when an email comes in and figure out which, um, you know, quite simply which knowledge base article is going to best serve that customer. And um, sounds, you know, it's not, it's not driving a car down to the supermarket. You know what I mean? Like this is, this sounds very simple, but in, a, in another way, you know, these are millions and millions of experiences that can be optimized over time. Similarly, um, the people on the other side of that conversation uh, generally don't know 
what it is customers are searching for or asking for, for which there is no answer. And so, you know, by using the same uh, analysis of inbound inquiries that we have and knowledge bases, we can actually give them cues as to what content to write and sort of um, direct them to build a better experience and improve their customer experience in that way. And so from, from a, I think from an enterprise software builder's point of view, artificial intelligence gives you this, uh, is a tool that you can use at so many points of interaction between uh, brand and consumer, between the two parties basically on either side of any transaction uh, inside of your knowledge base. It's something that you can use there to shave off little moments of pain and remove friction and apply intelligence and just make the world seem frictionless and a little smarter. And our goal internally is basically to meander through our product in a directed way, finding those experiences and making them better. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we want someone who's using, who's deploying our stuff and giving a customer experience with it. We want, you know, the consumers experiencing that brand, the people interacting with that brand to be like, oh, you know, that was a, I'm not sure why that was good, but I did really enjoy that customer service experience. You know, I didn't, I got what I wanted. It was quick, it was fast. Like, I don't know how they quite did that, but I really enjoyed it. And I think we all had those moments in service where someone just totally got what you were after and it was delightful uh, because it was, you know, just smooth and efficient and good and no drama and um, prescient almost. And I think what we are trying to do, what we would like to do is adapt to all of our software and the experiences that we have to be able to, you know, be that anticipatory and smart and enjoyable. And I think, um, enterprise software is filled, the enterprise software world for all, you know, all types of software like CRM, ERP, all these kind of things. It's filled with sharp edges, friction and pain. You know, it's, a uh, there are, you know, pieces of acquisitions glued together. There are, you know, people, um, you know, you're using products that represent someone's broken dreams acquired by someone else and shoehorned into other experiences. And, um, I think generally the consumer of enterprise software at this point is a little bit tired of the, of the pain of form filling and repetition and other things. And so, um, our approach to, you know, smoothing those edges to, to grinding the stone and polishing the mirror is to slowly but surely, um, improve each of those experiences with intelligence. So it sounds like you have a broad charter to look at kind of all levels of the um, customer interaction and look for opportunities. So I'm going to ask you a question that probably doesn't have an answer, but I'm, I'm going to try anyway. So if, if you, do you prefer to find places where there was an epic fail and that it was like so bad, you know, it was just terrible and the person was like angry and, and it was just awful. Or would you rather have, 10, fix 10 of a minor annoyance where somebody had to, you know, enter data too many times. I mean, like, are you working to cut the edges off the bad experiences or just generally make the system face shift up a little bit? Um, I, I think to a certain extent, I, I like to think of that as a false dichotomy because the person who has a terrible experience and gets angry, chances are that wasn't a 
there wasn't a momentary snap. There was a drip feed of annoyances that took them to that point. And so our goal, um, you know, when we think about it, is to pick out the most impactful rough edges that cumulatively are going to engulf someone in the red mist of homicidal fury on the end of a phone complaining about their broken widget. And I think, you know, most people do not, uh, do not flip their anger bit um, over a tiny infraction or over a large infraction. It's over a period, it's a, it's a lifetime of infractions. It's a lifetime of inconveniences that gets you to that point, or it's the lifetime of that incident and that inquiry and how you've got there. Um, what generally sort of emotionally rational beings who've been through many customer service experiences in exhibiting that level of frustration generally requires a continued and sustained effort on the part of a brand to get you there. And do you generally, I assume you have good data to work off of, like you, there are good metrics in, in your field. And so you get to, to wade through a lot of data and say, wow, here's, here's a pattern of, of, of mm -hmm. misses that we can fix. So uh, is that the case? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we, we see, you know, we have a data set, uh, an anonymized data set, you know, that encompasses billions of interactions. And we can, you know, many of those interactions, the beauty of that data set is they're rated, right? And they're rated either by the time it took to solve the problem or they're rated by an explicit rating where someone said that was a good interaction or that was a bad interaction. And so um, when we did the CSAT prediction, we were really leveraging, you know, the millions of scores that we have that tell us how uh, customer service interactions went. In general, though, we talk about um, the data asset that we have available to us that we can use to train and learn uh, and query and analyze. So last question, you, you quoted Arthur C. Clarke, so I have to ask you, is there any science fiction about AI that you enjoy or like or think that could happen? Like, her or Westworld or iRobot or any of that, even books or, or whatnot? Um, I, I, you know, I did, I, I did uh, find Westworld to be one of uh, probably the most compelling thing I watched this year uh, and just truly delightful in its thinking about memory and everything else. Um, although it was, you know, pure, obviously pure fiction. Uh, and I think, I, I think her was also just a, you know, a disturbing, uh, a disturbing look at the way that we can, uh, identify with, we will be able to identify with inanimate machines and build relationships there that, um, you know, was all too believable. So I think you, you quoted two of my favorite things, but, uh, Westworld was so awesome. It interestingly had a different theory of consciousness uh, from the, 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 the bicameral mind, not to give anything away. Oh, well, let's, uh, let's mm -hmm. stop there. This was a magnificently uh, interesting hour. I think we touched on so many fascinating topics, and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Brian. It's wonderful to chat to you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice 
But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.